This is a download of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. For more information, go to the website, www.press.uchicago.edu. Hello and welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Stephen Asma about his new book, Against Fairness. Stephen Asma is distinguished scholar and professor of philosophy in the Department of Humanities, as well as fellow of the Research Group in Mind, Science, and Culture at Columbia College, Chicago. He's the author of several books, including On Monsters, Stuffed Animals and Pickled Heads, and following form and function. Stephen Asma, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the Chicago Audio Works today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a question that I bet that most people who see the cover of this book will ask themselves. What is it that Stephen Asma has against fairness? Uh, Yeah, I should be clear on this. I'm uh, against fairness, but uh, I'm for justice. So this is not sort of a defensive, selfish, um, jerk-like behavior. Um, I just think that fairness uh, is what I'll call an an anemic uh, ethical concept. And it emerged during the Enlightenment when we were trying to get uh, ethics on the same footing as the sciences. We wanted it to be like Newton's gravity. There'd be a universal law that would apply to everybody. And then it got perfected during the era of uh, utilitarianism. And uh, we in this country and in the West generally embrace this idea that if we're going to talk about ethics, it must be uh, fairness that we mean. And in the book, I'm arguing that there's much more full-blooded notions of justice and ethics besides fairness. And we need to incorporate these, whether you're conservative or liberal, in order to sort of better navigate um, our ethical world. I think most of us live in a world of exceptions, not universal laws. And many of us are very strongly bonded uh, to our families, our kith and kin. And this creates these preferential biases. And so as a philosopher, I want to try to understand how do these preferential biases fit with the kind of utilitarian ideas of fairness that we all recognize. You know, this book made me think a lot about the job of a philosopher. And uh, I imagine when you're at cocktail parties and this question of fairness comes up and you encounter some resistance from people, is it that they haven't thought through these issues clearly enough, which is more kind of the role of a philosopher? Or is there some psychological resistance to the idea that although they may be committed to fairness, in fact, they might not be being that fair at all? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there's a kind of uh, philosophical story that you can tell about how these concepts emerged in our culture. But I do think um, part of my job as a philosopher is to look at psychology and to think about it in ways maybe that psychologists aren't. Um, For example, uh, it's pretty clear that one of the things my kid learned early on and most kids learn is to sort of say, well, hey, dad, that's not fair. And everybody's heard that a million times. Um, Of course, psychologists have noticed that there's a kind of emotional uh, engine behind our sort of outrage about fairness. And frequently, it's been identified as envy or jealousy. And many people will sort of say, well, if I didn't get what that person got, um, I'm going to call unfair and uh, basically act like this is a, a... a violation or a sin against ethics when when in reality I just am jealous or envious. Um, So in a a sense, psychology has noticed this. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that those feelings are sort of uh, that sort of renders the judgment of unfairness uh, as illegitimate. It just means we should sort of keep that in mind. Many people who are, are advantaged by certain kinds of preferential treatment don't notice it as much, um, and they only notice it when they've been injured by it. So this is something we all need to keep in mind. Your son shows up several times in this book, and in one of the parts of the book, you talk about the fact that you learned a little bit about how his school is approaching these questions of fairness. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and maybe give us a sense of how is it that institutions like schools may not be doing their students a lot of justice by focusing so much on fairness and equal outcomes? Yeah, there's a couple of things that happened um, when he was in like third and fourth grade, um, he came home with a uh, a ribbon that and said he had won this foot race, and I was all excited, proud father. And then he explained that, uh, you know, everybody who had run the race in his class won won the race, and that they had all received the same ribbon. And uh, I thought this was funny. Uh, and I said, well, you can't all win the race. And he just sort of held it up to me like, uh, you know, this here's the counter evidence. Um, and then in addition, I was told, uh, you know, when we went to bring Valentines for uh, other students, we, we were told you must bring Valentines for everybody if you're going to bring them at all. You can't sort of preferentially um, give Valentines. And, and I think part of this is just that um, schools like other modern institutions have become so big that they have to create these rules and then they have to treat all the students as if they were, you know, it's, it's a bureaucratic system. They have to treat all the kids as basically um, not as individual personalities, but as about the same, and they have to be uh, governed by these rules. That's true of any large institutions uh, given modern education. But on top of it, we had a kind of self-esteem movement that really picked up steam in the 20th century. Uh, and more recently, it's I think it's gotten a bit out of control. So the idea is that if you were to give Valentines to Susie or Janet or whatever, then Mary or um, another kid is going to be hurt and their self-esteem might be crushed by this. So in order to avoid that psychological trauma, educators have developed these policies whereby everybody will get exactly the same. And my own view is that this is a I understand it, but I think it's probably not good for kids to pretend um, that the world is utterly fair. And uh, my own view is a bit uh, – I, I, I think it's sort of good for character uh, for kids to understand that, uh, oh, you know what? I didn't win the race. There are people faster than me. Um, I didn't get picked first on the team. I didn't get the best part in the play. But you know what? Uh, character develops from these kinds of uh, failures or uh, whatever. And I think this is ultimately good for kids who have to accommodate a much more unfair world when they get out into the real world. You examine this whole idea of fairness from a lot of different lenses in this book. Uh, let's talk about evolution. Is there an evolutionary advantage to favoritism? Oh, I definitely think that uh, favoritism gives an evolutionary advantage and that it was selected for in social mammals. If you look at... Um, primates, for example, you see uh, tremendous amounts of what I'm going to call favoritistic uh, behavior. That's a bit of a mongrel word, but my point is um, many uh, chimps, bonobos, um, and gorillas engage in a kind of elaborate social grooming, which forms alliances. Um, they're sort of the obvious alliance of your kin, your blood relations. So mothers, for example, are 
sort of what I would consider the paragon cases of favoritism. They, they'll favor their baby uh, over everybody else. And we know from evolution that there's good reason. There's sort of kin selection. You keep your own genes going. But those ties spread out, too, to, to um, form uh, not just nuclear families but friendships. So we see animal friendships not just in primates uh, but other mammals as well. And these are reinforced by um, these grooming behaviors and food sharing and provisioning. And it's pretty clear that this, this developed as a way in which the social group could have strength and solidarity and stability and would have a greater uh, ability to adapt and survive uh, over just any individual. So I think what, what's happened is human beings have inherited this from our ancestors, and we have the ability to stretch the circles of favoritism into more flexible arenas. Let's take a look at the concept of fairness from another cultural perspective. Uh, you've lived in Asia, you've worked in Asia, you've written about Asia, and one comes away from this book thinking that Asian, particularly Chinese culture, although you'd also talk about Indian culture, has a very different view of favoritism than the West. Can you give us an example of a way favoritism plays out in an Asian culture in a way it probably wouldn't play out in a Western culture? Yeah, I, I lived in Cambodia for a while and in China. And um, I've studied Chinese culture a lot, and I, I think it's interesting that their ideas about ethics are based on the family. Like, we think about ethics as being fairness, but if you look at Confucian cultures, um, they think of your duties and your obligations and... Um, and your ethical life as based on where you fall in the family. If you're a child, you owe everything to your parents. You know, they have a, they call this filial piety. And um, if you're an elder sibling, then you have many more privileges than younger siblings, but also many more responsibilities. And so if you look at um, Chinese philosophy, you see that it, the way to learn how to be a good person and have good character is to develop these family relations um, and, and sort of uh, let these flourish. Then all of that will sort of seep into your uh, wider civil relationships. Now, how does that play out? Um, I think in Chinese culture, you find um, you don't have a lot of uh, what I'm going to call the world-saving philosophy that we have in the West, we tend to think about um, everyone being equal and that we have to apply the same kind of uh, rights and duties to everyone. And that leads to, uh, I think, there's, there's a philosopher who called this the jelly bee fallacy, which is named after a character in a Dickens novel, uh, Bleak House. Mrs. Jellybee is more concerned and devoted about a, a, a rather... Um, remote African tribe than she is about her own family in London. And you, you find this a lot in the West. Philanthropy is good, but it tends to sort of, in the West, it goes out in all directions. And we think about how do we give money to strangers? How do we protect strangers? For the Chinese, you would never uh, attend to the needs of a stranger before family. You would always um, basically try to attend to your family first. And then only later, if there was some kind of uh, surplus could you attend to strangers. So I thought it was funny that when, you know, uh, Warren Buffett and uh, Gates went to China, China to try to, you know, uh, sort of uh, get interest in philanthropy, the, the huge rise of Chinese millionaires were a bit confused by the Western ideas of philanthropy. They thought, well, why, why would I give strangers uh, my money? 
And uh, this is just a, you know, it's a, it, perhaps it's a bit comical, but it's an example of how the ethical favoritism has shaped the different cultures of the West and the East. So that's just one example. You know, as I listen to that response, I think it must have been a real challenge for the People's Republic of China, which again is nominally a communist country, to embrace all of the communist and egalitarian lifestyle, given the fact that culturally the Chinese aren't predisposed to egalitarianism. Yeah, it's a good point. The If you look at what uh, Chairman Mao wanted to do with Chinese culture, it was pretty clear he wanted to level it and make it egalitarian in the ways that we recognize. Um, but my own view is that this, w- this was not at all successful. And even though nominally Chinese culture is uh, communist, um, it had to fight against these, what I'm going to call kind of bourgeois values. And by, by that, I don't mean an economically bourgeois, I just mean families. Um, 2,000 years of Confucian philosophy about the importance of family could not be undone by a couple of decades of Maoist thought. And sure enough, traditional Chinese uh, family culture is as strong as ever. Um, so in that sense, I think Mao's experiment was a, was a failure in terms of trying to achieve what he wanted. Um, on the other hand, it's interesting that, you know, there is tremendous disparity in Chinese culture, but the objective um, evaluation of uh, economic disparity called the Gini coefficient, which uh, social scientists sort of use to analyze cultures, it's interesting that China and the United States are about equal on this Gini coefficient, which means the it, the inequity is about the same. So we have to be careful not to judge, you know, the Chinese culture as being um, callous about uh, inequality when the United States also does not do well on this uh, on this measure. Is there a relationship between the way that societies approach fairness and, I guess, overall societal happiness? I got a sense from the book that that the link might not be as tight as people necessarily assume. Did I read that right? Well, I think it's possible that we could be raised um, so strongly on the ideology of fairness that it could work to our own uh, disadvantage in terms of happiness. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, there's a very famous uh, quote by Gandhi where he said, you know, in order to love everybody equally and fairly, you can't love anybody, any particular person too much because that would, you know, interfere and create bias. And so I can imagine where people could take this to heart, you know, people who are uh, want to be saints um, or just really they love the ideology of, of equality um, so much that they, they try to distribute their affection to everyone. Um, My own view is that this would be very much against our own happiness. You know, there's a kind of recent uh, spate of psychological studies on happiness. You know, happiness studies, I think, is what we're calling it now. And all of these studies sort of speak with one voice that the main ingredient in the happy life is strong social bond. Um, And strong social bonds are difficult to sustain. You know, I'm going to call them sort of tribal bonds, meaning tribal in a very general sense. And it seems to me that in a purely egalitarian society where that emphasizes fairness too much, you might lose some of that strong connection, that preferential bonding that we have with uh, with with family and friends. Um, I see a little bit of it happening in my own students who are very uh, devoted to social networking sites, you know, where, where they're on and they, they have friendships that are largely digital. And uh, I think that what we know about happiness is that you have to sort of get offline and 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 basically do things with people 
um, and you have to go to the wall for them. And this is how you uh, basically engender more loyalty and these kinds of uh, character virtues. And this turns out to be a major ingredient in happiness. So finally, is there a reform that you can think of that while it might decrease the overall fairness in the society, would increase that society's overall quality of life? Yeah, I. it's interesting. Um, the United States is one of the few countries that has no uh, national uh, requirement for paid maternity leave or parental leave. And I was thinking about this. You know, there's like there's only a couple others like Papua New Guinea and Swaziland in Africa and the United States. Um, I mean, there are state policies where uh, a mother uh, and sometimes a father can take off like six weeks, to, uh, maybe even 12 weeks, though not necessarily paid. And uh, this seems to me a, a place where you could change the policies based on what I'm arguing are, are really important uh, values, namely uh, family bonding. Um, I'm very much for favoritism and nepotism in the positive sense. You have to have these strong family bonds for a healthy society. Um, it, the Czech Republic, mothers can take uh, three years of state-supported leave after a child's birth. I mean, that's sh- shocking, three years off. Um, and even in the UK, companies uh, are required to pay for like 39 weeks of leave. Compare that with the United States where we, I think we're thinking more about workplace fairness um, and the sort of economics of the workplace and not enough about um, the importance of family bonding and that kind of um, that kind of positive uh, allegiance that I, I'm sort of trying to champion. So I can imagine, uh, okay, is it fair for a mother to have a year off or even three years off after her child is born? From the point of view of the company or the workplace, they'd probably say, no, it's not fair. But then in that in that sense, I say fairness be damned. It's better for society uh, to have strong bonds between uh, babies and their mothers. You end up having less crime later on. You have less anxiety. You have more happiness. You probably have more productivity. So I do think you could look at our society from this different lens, not egalitarian fairness, but something more like um, uh, favoritism and possibly build more social justice uh, policies around it. Stephen Asma, the author of Against Fairness, thanks so much for taking time to talk to Chicago Audio Works today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this download from the University of Chicago Press. Your comments and questions are always welcome, and the email address for the show is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Copyright 2012, the University of Chicago Press, all rights reserved. <laughs>